Welcome to Pragmatic. It's all part of the plan. Pragmatic is a weekly discussion show contemplating the practical application of technology. Exploring the real-world trade-offs, we look at how great ideas are transformed into products and services that can change our lives. Nothing is as simple as it seems. This episode is sponsored by Harvest. Harvest lets you time your tasks wherever you might be doing them and easily analyze your timesheet to track billable or non-billable hours and turn those into invoices for your clients with both PayPal and Stripe integration. Check out Harvest at getharvestoronword.com and sign up for a free 30-day trial and start tracking your time and invoicing others simply and painlessly. Once your 30-day trial is up, use the coupon code PRAGMATIC at checkout and you'll receive up 50% off your first month. But hurry because this offer expires on the 15th of January 2015. This episode is also sponsored by Mandrel. Mandrel is a transactional email service that easily ties into your website and apps when you need to send one-off emails like responses, password resets, acknowledgements, and so on. Visit mandrill.com and sign up today. Why not? It's free. And use the promo code PRAGMATIC to get 50,000 free email transactions per month for six months. Normally, there's only 12,000 a month. That's four times the normal amount. Integrate, deliver, track, and analyze using email infrastructure from Mandrill. We'll talk more about them during the show. I'm your host, John Chigi, and I'm joined today by my guest host, Seth Clifford. How are you doing, Seth? I'm doing well, John. Thanks for having me back. Oh, no worries. Thank you for coming back. Uh, before we uh, dive into the, today's topic, I just want to uh, quickly do a little bit of pre-show blurb. <laughs> uh, it's now possible to see the list of topics I'll be covering on the show in coming weeks and months at techdistortion.com slash topics. If you're not a member, you will be able to see the list. But if you sign up, you'll be able to vote on the existing list and also suggest whatever topic you'd like covered on the show. I'll be locking in episodes a week or two ahead of time and people can see the topic and co-host or guest host ahead of time so they can tune in and know what to expect. Go check them out. I've also started releasing an equivalent to the After Dark slash After Show slash B-Side thingies, whatever you want to call them. Uh, I'm calling it Addenda. It's at techdistortion.com slash podcasts slash Addenda. So go check it out. Uh, It's also on iTunes. You can always search for it in there as well. Uh, and finally, if you're enjoying the show and you haven't yet rated in iTunes, feel free to do so. Always appreciate it. Always very much appreciate it. Uh, I've also changed servers recently and uh, put a new VPS up that's uh, now located in uh, San Francisco. So should be a little bit zippier than before and uh, it clean out all the cruft and it's uh, all nice and squeaky. Uh, brand spanking virtually new because it's virtual. Anyway, there you go. That wasn't very funny. Never mind that. Okay. So... Um, this is a bit of a, an interesting topic that, uh, that you want to talk about, uh, Seth, and it was, has to do a lot with how design is, shall we say, I'd like to say guided, but it's not so much guided. It's more, um, a little bit bullied and a little bit shoved around by different interests, shall we say, like, uh, well, there's marketing and advertising and obviously the customer as well, but... I thought it might be interesting to sort of look at how how we focus when we're being pushed around by the, all the different competing demands when we're trying to deliver something. What do you reckon? Yeah, I think there's probably plenty to talk about there. Um, it's it's one of those things that we had kind of chatted about prior to the show, you know, several weeks back, and I think it's the kind of thing that depending on where you work and 
with whom you work, you you either have a, a great handle on this or you struggle with it or you're constantly battling it. And there's a there's a very there's a tough line you need to draw as a person working in a creative field when other people are actually paying you directly for it, but also influencing your creativity. And you have to kind of compartmentalize how you feel about that to perform at your highest level. So I think there's probably a lot of interesting, you know, directions we can go with. Okay. Well, I think what, what where I'd like to start is I'd like to start by thinking about how we divide this up. Uh, so when you've got, when you're developing a product and, and I guess, uh, the design is for either could we could classify it as either for a single individual or an entity, and like and when I say like an, an entity, it's like a tr- like a truly honestly single point of authority. So I guess that's sort of the way I differentiate because you can still develop something for an entity that has one overriding voice, whereas you can also have an organizational customer such that you know you have five, six, seven, eight different people that you're trying to satisfy so i think there's a there's a there's a bit of a difference between like sole customers and an organizational customer sort of affects a little bit about how you go about pleasing who you please sort of um, just just might help in sort of breaking this down a little bit um also i think it's worthwhile breaking down the design being for internal or external organizations and i may sound a little bit you know douchey but i mean honestly if you're developing something in-house for your own internal needs um you know which you know, we've we've both sort of done, but a lot of the work that we've done predominantly has been for external organizations. And when you're doing things in house, it's it's, you know, you can sort of bend rules and change change the way your you can change your direction a lot more with a lot more agility and and a little bit more free will there. Whereas if you've got a, an external customer, it's a very different story. It becomes more of a negotiation. So, I think that's worthy of breaking down as well. Um, I don't. I don't know. I guess you could break it down further in terms of if there's money involved, but that's probably beyond the scope of this really. So, okay. I'm thinking about uh, a matrix, like a quadrant. No, I don't mean like a matrix where you plug a thing in the back of your head. I mean like a two by two matrix whereby you can look at elements of a design as being, in terms of their implementation, as being straightforward or complex. And I realize that that's a simplification, but I mean, let's just say that there's something that some other party wants. It doesn't matter if it's the customer, if they're, or, or if it's if it's uh, if it's someone who wants something from a marketing perspective and say, you know, oh, this would be a really marketable feature. We've got to have this, irrespective of what kind of feature it is. It could be either straightforward or it could be, um, it could be complex. And I guess. My point is that that would be one axis, and on the other axis of the matrix, we would we could say, well, it's something could be a completely independent feature. In other words, it doesn't affect any of the other features in any way. It's very very isolated. It has its own little. It's it can build in its own little silo. It doesn't affect anything else. Or it could be very interdependent, such that if we add this feature, it's going to affect one or more other features of this product. So if 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 you think of it like a matrix, this is the way I want to sort of try and tease this out a bit is. Uh, the four quadrants of that matrix kind of do the whole straightforward and independent, which is totally easy. Someone says to you, hey, you know, we want to add this. It's really straightforward feature and it's completely not going to affect the rest of the product. It's like, you know, snap your fingers. Yep. Okay. No problem. That's easy. 
But when things get a little bit more complicated when you say, okay, well, maybe a straightforward feature, but now it's interdependent. So we're in that second quadrant. It's like, okay, well, now we need to consider all of the different interdependencies. We don't want to, we don't want to affect like, yes, okay, the customers, the marketing guys say, it's gotta be blue because blue is pleasing to the eye. Who was the who was the company that did all the studies that about the different shades of blue? Was that Microsoft or Google? Someone did. Oh, I don't even remember. I think it's one of those two. Yeah, I think it was. And they 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 came up with blue being the most pleasing color, and therefore it was a predominant background color in one of their wallpapers or something. But anyway, so there's that, and then there's the complex and the in, complex and independent in that third quadrant where you got something that problem is very it's it's complicated to implement, might take a fair bit of time, and that comes back to you know cost, schedule, prioritization. And you could put a person to hack away at that for a long time and see what they get as a result. But because it's independent, they can sort of do that on their own. And that's that. And then finally, the fourth quadrant where everyone is angry. And that is if it's complicated and it's, and it has a lot of interdependencies. And it's like, okay, now what do I do? And usually those are the ones we end up having to say no because it's like, well, you know, we've got to fix budget. We've got to fix amount of time. It's too complicated and there's too many dependencies. I'm sorry, but we just can't accommodate that. Oh. <sighs> I don't know. What do you think? I think that's as good a place to start as any. Uh, I think that probably encapsulates most of the kinds of decisions we're talking about. All right, cool. So I, I guess the thing is, the easiest position you can take in, as a design lead is to say, I'm going to take the uncompromising position. And I'm going to say, you know what? If as lead designer, I don't want it, or it's not in the contract, it's not happening. You know, that's the easy way. A anyone can say you know, it's not in the contract, I don't care, you know. But the problem with that, if you want to take that path, you just, you're not going to have very many happy customers. You're just not. You're not going to get repeat business. You're not going to get a good reputation. Yeah, it's, and, it's easy, but it's not, it's it's easy for you on paper, but it becomes less easy for you sustain, you know, to sustain that yes. kind of behavior going forward. Yeah, exactly. And it, it, it'll hurt you in the long term. So, the reality is I've worked with organizations like that and there are some aspects of the organization that I may or may not currently be involved with that'll have some of those aspects in common in certain areas only. But yeah, it's it's and it's frustrating as hell because you realize that, you know, that no, no one's doing themselves favors by taking an uncompromising attitude like that. So, uh, not recommending that for a second. But I guess the thing is, I also, and I see the flip side of that. And the flip side is, I want to, I want you to develop a, a product for me, and I have to give you an idea of what I want. But I can't design it all and think it through all up front. I can't put every single requirement down on a piece of paper such that we have a complete map from start to finish of everything that I want you to create for me, because it's only happening in your head, and you well, you're limited by your own head. <laughs> you're limited by the space in your brain. There's only so much you can think through and therefore there's only so much you can write down at the time of writing a contract and say, well, you know, here's kind of what we want. It's uh, This is what we want as an end result, sort of. You know, but I can't tell you all of the little details. And this is when things get tricky because in that uncompromising position, you know, you can sort of say, well, you know, this, this is a gray area now. It's like, well, you said you're going to give us, uh, I don't know, messaging or something as part of the feature set in the app. And like, well, no, that wasn't, it didn't explicitly say that it was or wasn't in. So I'm going to count that as scope creep and I'm not going to help you. So I guess the point is that 
you need to be able to tweak the design a little bit in some small ways as you go along. And whether or not you... You know what I mean when I say scope creep? Oh, yeah. I'm familiar with scope creep. <laughs> I actually think that I did pick that up in North America because I worked at Nortel for a while. And there's my buzzword bingo. But the point is, um, yes, uh, I, I think scope creep is one of those things that's a bit misunderstood. So rather than me jabber on about it, how would you describe scope creep? Scope creep is this phenomenon that occurs when you may, you know, let's let's assume you have business requirements for the thing that you're trying to build. And the business requirements encompass, you know, these five areas, but the five areas may not be as well defined as they probably should be. Or there might be aspects to elements of those areas that aren't as well defined as they should be. And as you're building the product, you know, let's say, for argument's sake, let's say it's a, you know, it's the co the contact page on a website, and in the in the first meeting you say, well, what do you want on this page? And they say, we just need people to get in touch with us. And you say, okay, well then we're gonna this will be a static page, and we'll put up some information, and people will see, you know, uh, an email contact and a phone number and your address, and that's great. And you, everybody goes, okay, great, and we move on to the next thing. And you build that page and you start doing other things and somewhere down the line, the client looks at it and goes, we were kind of thinking that maybe we should have Google Map integration. And you're like, okay, so how important is that to you? And they say, well, it's pretty important just because our office is really hard to find. And you go, okay, well we think we have time in the schedule for that. Or you say, well, we absolutely don't have time in the schedule for that. But if you say you, you think you do, then you either, the smart thing to do is say, okay, we're adding this. We need to reevaluate how this impacts the other stuff that we've already, you know, committed to. But you you add it and everybody's happy and you go, okay, we, you know, we accommodated them. They're happy. That's not such a big deal. And then a week later, somebody goes, you know, we had another meeting about this, and what we would actually like is uh, this this proprietary kind of street view thing. We actually have a partnership with uh, a, a company that does this kind of thing with street view, but they they I think they have an API, and mm. you're like, okay, well, now we're talking about you know, far more than the static content we had initially agreed on and more than the Google Maps integration that we talked about last week. And it just becomes this kind of thing where people keep meeting and talking and what they actually thought they wanted may be there, but it's not quite what's the topic of discussion that week. And so you end up taking a static HTML page that was supposed to be text and putting all these kinds of things in it. And that's like a super stupidly simple um, example, but it's the kind of thing that starts out simple and continues to balloon. In a lot of cases, you have a really complex feature that is very well documented, and somebody says, w it would really be great if it did this one other thing. And you're like, well, <laughs> it would be great, but unfortunately that one other thing means two more weeks of engineering and another week of QA and, you know... It could be anything that's added to the project along the way that swells both the overhead involved in project management, development, design, QA, and then finally, you know, how long it takes to deliver that feature. And it happens 
all the time. And it's one of the toughest things to deal with in a client service industry because you want them to be happy and you want to please them. But to do your best work, you need to be very mindful of when that is happening and you need to be very forthright in describing what's happening to them and, and letting them understand that we recognize what you're doing, we we hear what you're saying, we want this to be a thing that you can have, but you can't have it now. We can we can phase it in later. We can talk about when it is an appropriate time to add this. Or if you really must have this, then we're going to compromise and find something else in the project that isn't as important now that we can drop and use the time for that. So it's it's that kind of scenario that we usually face. Okay, cool. So when um, and. and- I have had uh, similar experiences in in different contexts as well, and I think that's a that's a, a pretty good definition of scope creep. I guess uh, the way I would the way I would say it is um, uh, scope creep is new functionality beyond the original scope, such that uh, if it was omitted, as in not implemented, then the product um, would still meet the original design intention and. So if it does, if it falls inside that category, that you can consider that to be scope creep. And I guess when, when you um, this is more of a more curious question than anything else is when you when you do quote when you quote for a job or factor your rates, do you include an allowance for? I hate to say scope creep in that context, but miscellaneous general and say, well, you know what, we can handle maybe a week or two of additional tweaking here and there as a buffer. And then once that's gone, it's gone. And because I I have to admit, I'll put my head up and say, I've actually have done that on, on some fixed price quotes. I've actually gone and said, you know what? I've got a buffer here of X number of weeks of engineering hours to, to account for... Um, like, for example, if I've got a vague spec that I'm quoting to, I will put in a lot more time <laughs> because I know that there's going to be creep beyond what is in the spec. Is that something that you that you have come across? Generally speaking, we try to plan as accurately as possible. We don't really sure. we don't really buffer things like that because we've gotten to a point thankfully where we are very um very tuned in to the the conversations up front and getting the documentation that we need and nailing everything down. And so we plan specifically to the features that need to be built and certainly sometimes things take longer and that's a, that's a different issue but we don't really like add time in that way because we do a lot more upfront research on what we think it will take to do this feature that feature this other feature and then you know also to test those things and have, make sure that they are all functioning properly so that we we can have those conversations later and say, you know, we are on time, we're on schedule. These are things that we've agreed to build. You know, we want to accommodate you, but we either need to move things around in the schedule or we need to push the date or we need to do, you know, like you have those those levers that you can push with clients and say, if you've got a date that's immovable, then we need to have a conversation about you know, what is important and what isn't important to ship by that date. If your date is flexible, then we can have another discussion about adding other things in. But I think it's important, I think it's important to not have too much of that wiggle room because it 
forces you to be extremely focused on what needs to get done and in what time frame. And you, you, as you, as you do this more, you learn to have those conversations earlier with clients and you learn to be as clear in your language as possible because when you don't adequately describe to them how this is affecting the overall product and project, then they're not, they're not going to understand it. Like that's for you to explain to them. So I think a lot of people do build in that kind of time just to Mm. a lot for that. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's not, it's, I wouldn't label that as like, you know, some kind of weird nefarious behavior because you understand what is being asked of you. And if your business requirements are flexing or they don't know what they want, you may just have a conversation with them and say, look, I'm going to say it's going to take this much time because we don't know what you guys want yet. And I think that's perfectly acceptable too. But it's it's all part of having those conversations early and in clear language so everybody's on the same page. Yeah. One of the uh, other approaches that uh, that they take in uh, in my in my specific line of work is they will do a uh, well what what sometimes people refer to as a uh, as a budget price, and so they'll they'll have a very brief framework of a specification, and it'll go out to market, and they'll say you know you come back with a budget budget quote, and the budget quote will have a very wide percentage on it. So it'd be like, you know, plus or minus 35, plus or minus, you know, 20%, whatever. And you put in that value with a, with a median expected value and, a, you know, a, a positive, a, like an over-under on it. And, you know, then they'll, they'll do a shortlist from there, develop the design a little bit further, and then go back and say, right, now we want your fixed price quote. But, I mean, that's fixed price quoting and, yeah, you know, in, in in engineering, uh, like in, in construction industry, which is you know a very different industry from developing software. But uh, even so, uh, I think uh, I think it, as you say, I think it is a valid approach to do that. But you have to be very careful that you don't look like you're putting in way way too much buffer. Otherwise, first of all, you won't be competitive, and 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 second of all, if they ever see the cost breakdown, because half the time they want to see a, a cost breakdown of of your hours, even if it's in part, is it's difficult to hide that and a lot of customers will come back and say well hang on a minute what's this big miscellaneous thing for 10 million dollars I, you know, right. I don't i don't agree with that so you know but then of course that you then you're up against the battle of well do you break down your costs or do or do you not and you know i've i've had different managers who've said well you know you should if they ask for it then we should and other ones have said flat out no they get one price we don't break down our prices we don't care and you know, if you're hungry for the work and you're up and competing against others, we'll break it down. You'll be breaking it down whether you want to or not. Anyway, um, yes. So I guess uh, rather than going um, too, too much more about that, uh, I'll just actually very quickly talk about our first sponsor before we get into the next section, and that's Harvest. Now, many people listening to this show spend their time working on home projects and work projects too, and you lose track of time. We've talked about this on the show previously, about being realistic about how much time you have available to you. Now, one way you can track your time is by using Harvest. And they have a simple-to-use web app where you can create tasks. They also have mobile apps for both Android and iOS. And it's easy to select a task or an activity, start and stop a timer from any of them. On the Mac, it installs as a neat menu bar icon that detects when you've been idle for a long time. When you come back, you can then choose to deduct those idle minutes or hours from the total. Yeah, it's, it's little touches like that. Very cool. Anyway, it's a great way to track where your time is going. And after you're done, it's really easy to look back at your timesheet to see where the time's gone. 
That's handy enough, but if you're working on a project with a team, your coworkers can track their time and it makes it really easy to manage everyone's time on a project as well. So Harvest also makes invoicing easy. And it's quick and painless to set up clients and multiple points of contact those clients if you have that and build invoices using that information very, very quick once you've built and once you've set it all up. Better than that, Harvest lets you pull your hourly rates and your timesheets to create those invoices based on those rates, integrates nicely with PayPal and Stripe. Now, I've been using Harvest invoices for the podcast recently and it's now taken over as my invoicing system of choice. I think it's really nice. Check out Harvest at getharvestalloneword.com and sign up for a free 30-day trial and start tracking your time and invoicing others simply and painlessly. There's no credit card required, no obligation. They just want you to see how great and how handy it can be. There's no excuse not to give them a try. Now, once your 30-day trial is over and you've realized how great Harvest is, use the coupon code PRAGMATIC at the checkout and you'll also save 50% off your first month and that applies to any of their plans. Hurry though, because this offer expires on January the 15th, 2015. Thank you once again to Harvest for sponsoring Pragmatic. Okay, so where were we? I was thinking about, okay. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about the difference between um, marketable features and core features. And I guess... The reason I think this is important is that, I don't know, I, I get the feeling a lot of people don't appreciate enough of the difference and some people look at it as an either or and it really isn't. It's simply two different sets and the sets can overlap and that's perfectly fine. So, I, the way I see it is, and I'd like you to hear your take as well, but my take is... Uh, a core features you have to have, otherwise you just do, do not have a product that you can sell or hand over. Whereas marketable features, you know, marketable features essentially are designed more to drive sales and they sound great, but they don't necessarily have to be core features. And the issue comes... Ideally, you want to develop where they overlap. You want to develop the marketable features that are also core features. Because if you're spending time working on too many core features that are not obviously marketable or don't appear to add much value to the product, then it becomes less less well, less marketable. You're spending your time on, on that solid foundation stuff. And that's a dangerous game to play in some respects because if you start saying, well, I'm going to whittle away my core functions because they're not marketable, well, at the same time, you've got to balance that with I've got to have my core functionality, otherwise it will not be saleable at all. So it's really more the other side of that where the not the overlap, not the core features, but the marketable stuff that's just there for marketable reasons, for marketing reasons and sales purposes. And it's not really a core feature. It's not really a huge deal or it only addresses a very small subset of potential users. Spending a lot of time and effort on those is perhaps, I would suggest, not ideal. Um, what are your thoughts? I, I would agree with that. I think that probably when determining what's a core feature and what's a marketable feature it comes down to what the initial idea is like what are we what are we setting out to build is it the kind of thing that only a subset of a subset of a specific demographic would be interested in well then maybe we shouldn't even be building it because the effort that we're going to be putting into it isn't probably worth even marketing to this small you know this smaller population but in more specific terms of how do you balance those things? 
yeah, sometimes marketable features are your core features. And I think when you have that scenario where your core features are the most appealing to, you know, the, the people that you want to have using your product, that's, that's the optimal scenario because you can spend all of your time building the things that people are going to love about it and the things that you're going to want to talk about. But, you know, people, regular people, consumers, even just, you know, users in an enterprise setting don't really care, most of them don't really care about, you know, the engine that drives the product that they're using. So your core features, if you have, you know, a giant backend that needs to serve all this data and do all this stuff, it's it's one of those things where you're never going to be able to really talk about that. So you have to understand what that product does and potentially reframe what it's doing to to provide value to the people that you're trying to reach. And you may not have marketable features, but you need to create a marketable message so that people understand the value of what you're trying to bring to them. And that, I think, comes down to, again, the initial idea, plus the people that are charged with understanding the product and delivering that message. A lot of times, the people who are building something are all very kind of heads down, and you may have, you know, a lot of engineers and a lot of developers and, you know, project managers and people like that, but nobody's really thinking about what the end goal is. They're just trying to deliver, a, you know, a, a set of code on time, and that's fine, and that's very noble because that's how business is done, but, you know, that that still needs to exist after that delivery date, and if that product doesn't thrive, then you have to wonder why it was even undertaken in the first place. So there is a balance to be struck, but I think it really has a lot more to do with understanding the core of, to, to reuse that term, the core of what you're building, and then not even, not even building features to appeal to people, but building a story to appeal to people. Because you can take a really boring product and have it appeal to people if you show them and you demonstrate the value. Mm, absolutely. That's a good point. Uh, one of the things that I also found um, as a difference between a product that is, and, and, and I guess this is the problem, I don't want to say successful versus not successful, because that's not that, that, that really is quite a simplification and not really the point of what I'm getting at. It's more a product that is efficiently created from from inception to delivery. And those are the products that are focused. And I know that I think, you know, we may have, we may have talked about this previously or, or, or I have on the show, but the, and focus is, is, it's very, very important because what I've come across on products that tend to fracture a bit and they tend to develop too many of these features that are called marketable features that aren't core features and stuff. People just, someone in the, in the team has a great idea. And they're like, you know, this would be great if we did this. And rather than spending a week working on the core features that they absolutely have to have or on, you know, core features that are also marketable features that the product should have and satisfying all of the customer's requirements, but they'll go off on a tangent. They'll develop this one section. And they'll say, you know what, this, this is one feature. This is fantastic. You know, it'll become their pet feature, you know, and as a project manager or design lead, that's your worst nightmare because it's like, all of that creative energy and all of that talent is being directed towards something that 
either was not sanctioned or not fully sanctioned or not required or not um, not part of not part of the plan. And I found that to be endlessly frustrating. And it's like I thought to myself for the longest time, well, you know, is that a failing of is that a failing of mine as in the project management role? Am I am I simply not, you know, how do you manage that? How do you balance that? Because you don't want to you don't want to put your your foot on the back of their neck and say you will only develop this. There is no room for any of your personality, any of your desires, wishes, wants, any of that stuff. You know, you're a machine. Churn out code and stop complaining. I guess if you're a professional and the longer you do it, maybe that's more the case. But at the same time, I've met a lot of, I guess maybe that's my problem is I've, I've worked with a lot of younger programmers that simply don't re- respond to that. And they're, they're in it because they enjoy it. And if they don't have some degree of artistic flexibility and say, oh, I really wanted to add this or this little thing and it's a great idea and I'm sure the customer would like it. And I swear it'll only take a few hours. <clears throat> yeah, sure. But anyway, is that just me or have you come across that? No, that's it's not just you. Usually in what we do, we see it coming more from the client, right? So you've got a project that you're working on for you know a large corporation and you have your key stakeholders who all have a different idea of what this thing is supposed to be or do. And there's usually one person who has a little bit more pull than the other people. And so that person's desires kind of bubble up a little bit more. And a lot of times what you've committed to build and the idea that you've presented and what that person wants are not fundamentally opposed, but they're on diverging paths. And you need to kind of delicately and professionally bring those two paths together to converge again so that you can still deliver the product that you want to build but also satisfy that person's need to have their idea validated. And the trick okay. is, when you're, you know, what you're, what you were saying is more an internal thing, like the young developer who wants his amazing code gymnastics to shine through in the product. There's always yeah. going to be that kind of thing that you need to contend with. I think that that's that's a very different kind of condition where as a manager, you need to understand what that person, I mean, it's all psychological, right? In both cases, it's, it's understanding the psychology of the decisions being made and reacting to them in a way that is favorable for everybody involved. So the, you know, the business lead at the company wants his idea in there so that he can trumpet it later and everybody pats him on the back and says, what a great idea. The, the young developer <laughs> wants to show off just what a great developer he or she is. And, you know, they both need to be handled delicately because you want the client to be happy and you want your developer to be happy and and productive, but you need to understand the point from which they're coming and and why, why they're saying the things they're saying, why they're doing the things they're doing. So in the case of the young developer, you need to kind of convince them that, they can apply those same methods and that same kind of thought process to a part of the project that actually is important and needs to be built to the detail that they're that they're thinking about it and for the business person you need to 
show them that, hey, we hear your idea and we love it. And this is how we envision it being a part of the product. And it's, it's just kind of, you have to kind of just guide them back to where you need them to be. And that's a very tough skill to learn because as a project manager, as somebody who's kind of driving a, a project, you want everybody to be happy, but your bottom line is that you need to deliver on time and on budget. So there's all these kind of tangents that you need to manage. And it's it's tough. And you really need to be you need to be flexible because sometimes things do need to change, but you also need to be as rigid as you can be because everybody needs to understand that like we're all working to get to this point in the future. And if we're constantly, you know, injecting our personal feelings into this product as opposed to what the business has required, it we're never going to get there. And it's going to, you know, there's going to be gaps and there's going to be parts that maybe look great but don't even work at all. Yeah, and I think you yeah, you, you nailed it right there is it's about about limiting how much personality, you know, gets between the programmer and the job that they've got to do. And yeah, I guess one of the great things about having complete uh, control over what you're doing, like if you're developing your own product, is that you short circuit that because you know you can decide, you can make those decisions yourself as to okay, yeah, well, we really want this, we really want, I, I really want this, I really want that, so I'm going to adjust my own priorities. The the funny thing is, of course, that's probably not a good reason to do it <laughs> if you really want to be really self critical and and honest and fair about it. And I think you should probably, if you're running your own projects, you should run them as though you are trying to convince other developers uh, that you know, on, on your team as to why you should be adding certain features. So I think that that's a worthwhile exercise because you should be justifying to yourself why on earth you, you want to spend three days working on making a button look just right when that doesn't make a heck of a lot of economic sense, let's say. But anyway, rather than get into that, I guess... Uh, one of the one of the situations I came across you know, with a with a younger programmer who was trying to sort of flex their programming skills, and I, I'm I'm not sure if I've ever mentioned this one before, but the story goes that we were doing a SCADA package for a uh, sewage treatment plant, and we did I've done you know quite a few of those, and in a sewage treatment plant there's a thing called an oxidation ditch, and the ox ditch has uh, aeration, and the aeration. Uh, essentially forces oxygen into the bottom of the tank through fine bubble diffusers. And as those bubbles travel up through the tank, they get dissolved in the water. Well, not all of them, of course, but just some of them. And that raises the dissolved oxygen. The dissolved oxygen feeds the bacteria. The bacteria convert the uh, uh, the organic matter, shall we say, into a sludge that then sinks to the bottom. And that's then, you know, pumped out and treated further. Anyway, rather than work. The point is that the SCADA system had to indicate that aeration was functioning. So this rather um, industrious young engineer thought they would do some beautiful code gymnastics, as she called them, which I think is a nice way of putting it, <laughs> and make them world's most perfect SCADA bubbles you have ever seen. And these things were absolutely beautiful to behold because what they did is they followed a random track between set limits, and you could programmatically set the limits, 
so that in the in the X direction, the, the bubble would weave its way from the bottom of the tank to the top. As it did so, uh, just as it does in, does in real life, because the pressure of the water changes the diameter of the bubble. So as the bubbles start at the bottom, they're smaller. By the time they reach the top, when there's less water pressure on top, the bubbles are much larger. So yes, the bubbles actually increased proportionally in size as it traveled up the screen to mimic exactly the way bubbles would work in a real oxidation ditch. And uh, finally, just as a little touch to show how extra clever he was, when you turned on the actual aeration system, uh, the tank would have no bubbles in it. But as you turned it on, a wave of bubbles would start at the bottom and they would make their way up to the top and fill, and fill the tank as a continuous stream. When you turned off the aeration, the bubbles would stop at the bottom, but they would continue to float. The ones that were on the screen would continue to float up to the top of the screen, to the top of the tank, and then dissipate. It was, it was beautiful, I will admit, it was beautiful. It took him a week to program that. So 40, call it 40 hours of programming. Now, we didn't have 40 hours of programming to waste making bubbles, you know, right. So as an object lesson, this is not me beating my chest saying, oh, geez, I'm so clever. But it's like I spent, I think, 30 minutes, maybe an hour tops uh, doing my take on it with probably one-tenth of the lines of code. No, they weren't really random tracks. They were pseudo-random. Uh, no, they were not adjustable. And no, they didn't actually dissipate once you turned off the oxidation. But you know what? To, to the untrained eye that didn't know what they were looking at, they still looked pretty well the same. And it took me you know, a ridiculously small fraction of the amount of time that it took this guy. And the difference was I wasn't focusing on mimicking exactly the way it is in real life. Because I mean, if I really wanted to be really nitpicky about it, I could have said, well, he didn't, he, he didn't mimic the turbulence that's caused because all those bubbles cause turbulence on the surface. There was no turbulence in the graphic. Yeah, I mean, I could be really, really you know, nitpicky about that. But the point, the point of the illustration is that was time that was wasted on a feature that no one asked for, no one really needed. And yes, it looked beautiful to the trained eye, but to the untrained eye, no one cared. So... And that's what happens when you take a week off, folks. Because um, when you come back to work and you realize, what have you been doing for a week? Oh, really? <sighs> Sorry, that's just one of my horror, horror stories. I don't know if you've got any horror stories, but that's one of mine. <laughs> I'm sure I've got plenty, but we've only got a limited time that we can talk today. So, <laughs> Okay, fair enough. Well then, and, 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 and on that note, let's talk about our second sponsor for this episode. And that is Mandrill. Now, Mandrill is a scalable, reliable, and secure email infrastructure service trusted by more than 300,000 customers worldwide. Now, I've been asked, what is Mandrill? Because most people understand email newsletters showing up in their inbox, and a lot of them come from MailChimp. So, what's Mandrill? Well, Mandrill is essentially the, found, the foundation of MailChimp is built on, and it's been broken out into its own service for discrete emails rather than a big mailing list. So, think of them like transactions, hence why I call it transactional email. And that's actually how it started, though. In the two years leading up to 2012, Mandrill borrowed a bunch of MailChimp's best engineers. They promised to give them back at some point. And working in isolation, their Skunk Works project turned into Mandrill, which is now the largest email as a service platform on the market with more than 300,000 active customers, of which I am one. So let's say you run a site like Tech Distortion, for example, and you need to send feedback form confirmation emails. Mandrill can do that. Tech Distortion uses Stadmic as its CMS and runs Raven Forms as a plugin. And you just add the API key for Mandrill and that's it. It just works straight away. No problem. 
there's a bunch of new features uh, on the site um, as I've as I've said previously with voting and everything, and that's all uses Mandrel as the uh, as the email carrier for that. So I had been using standard PHP Mailer, but since I switched to Mandrel, it's been much easier to track and debug, and frankly, it performs better anyway. So you can use Mandrel to send automated one-to-one emails like password resets, welcome messages, confirmations, and customized newsletters if you want to. Mandrel is quick and easy to set up, and it's very stable. It's been made for developers by developers with, an ex- with extensive documentation, lots of different integration possibilities through their excellent API, and the service has very high delivery rates. Webhooks, analytics, you, they've got it all. Now, Mandrel's website has a well-organized interface. It has flexible templates, custom tagging, and advanced tracking and reporting. It's also the only email infrastructure service with a mobile app that lets you monitor delivery and troubleshoot from wherever you might be when you're out and about. So Mandrel is also very fast. It's got servers located distributed all around the world and they can deliver your email in milliseconds. And I tied on tech distortion from form submission, the email shows up within a second of submission. It's that quick. Detailed delivery reports, advanced analytics, a nice friendly interface means that if you're in a larger organization, the entire team from development to marketing can monitor and evaluate the email performance easily without having to hassle you as a developer. And that helps. So... Visit mandrill, that's M-A-N-D-R-I-L-L.com and sign up today. And you should because it's free. No credit card, no commitment, just sign up. And use the promo code PRAGMATIC to get 50,000 free email transactions per month for the first six months. That's four times the normal amount you normally get. Integrate, deliver, track and analyze with email infrastructure from Mandrill. Thank you once again to Mandrill for sponsoring PRAGMATIC. Okay, so... I think that the bottom line, uh, and just something briefly, you mentioned stakeholders before. Every time someone mentions stakeholders, I just wish someone would do like a Gary Larson comic, <laughs> like a single frame where you've got four business guys in ties holding plates with stakes on them and say the key stakeholders were in attendance. <laughs> I can't draw. If I could draw, I would do it. Yeah, <sighs> it's one of those phrases and i don't know being being on this show with you seems to bring out like enterprise speak business mouth oh sorry no it's okay sorry it's just because <laughs> it's because we've been in those scenarios so long they're just they're in there they don't come up in casual conversation but in the context of a discussion like this they just kind of bubble up yeah that's it it's it's hard to avoid i guess the problem with those sorts of business euphemisms is that once they enter conversational speech in a business environment when you're talking about business you can't help but have them creep in as well and the other thing is that you know a lot of these expressions have a good solid basis they didn't start out being you know really annoying cliched phrases they started actually being a good phrase with a good purpose it's just that because people overuse them and use them in the wrong context then that's sort of watered down their usefulness and then suddenly it becomes uh, the key stakeholder paradigm is shifting through cross-pollination or something. I was like, oh, God, really? I, I still have never heard parking lot, though. I, that's, you haven't heard parking lot? No, we've, oh. we, I've never come across that. When, when Casey said that one, I was laughing because I can picture it being used in a meeting over and over yeah. and over again. But, yeah, I don't think mm-hmm. I've ever heard somebody use that. Maybe it's a regional thing, but I guess if you've well, heard it, I guess not. Now, well, no, I, I mean, I've heard, I haven't heard it in Australia, but I've, I've heard it in uh, North America when I was in Can- Calgary, Ottawa. The, I mean, it was, um, I don't think it was a Nortel thing. I, I always figured it was a, 
Yeah, I, I figured it was a North American thing. Maybe it's a different regions in North America say it. But yeah, the the two were Rat Hole and Parking Lot. Rat Hole, sure. That that's a mm. yeah. That's an that's an easy one to come across. Oh sure, and yeah, but again, that's something that you don't hear in Australia. That's definitely a North American meeting expression. So you'll you'll be in the meeting and and someone will go off topic and say no nope, Rat Hole. First time I heard that, I'm sitting in the meeting going, "Is a what? Is a it's a what hole? A, a who's a what? Huh?" I had no idea what in the hell that meant. And then when someone said parking lot, I go, we'll just throw that in the parking lot. And I, I kid you not, the first time I heard the expression, I looked out the window. What? Look, you know, looking to find a, a car park. How about, <sighs> I, I don't want to get too off topic, but how about let's table this? Have you heard that? Yes. Oh, God, yes. Okay, because yeah. that, that I think is what we hear where we are more than parking lot. It's, you know what? This is great. Let's table that for later, mm. which I don't understand. Let's table it. We'll build yeah, the table out of it. I, I don't know. I guess it's just push, <laughs> we'll, push it we'll to put the an side idea. or something. We'll yeah. put an idea on the table, but doesn't that mean you're going to talk about it? So it's yeah. to me, yeah, I, I, I found that expression to be counterintuitive as well, actually, because it sounds like if you're, cause if you're tabling a motion, doesn't that mean you're suggesting a motion to be discussed? That's what I would have thought. I, I, I have no idea, but we could probably have a whole show about that. Oh, God. Do we have to? <laughs> no, please, no. no. no they'll, they'll, they'll come for our heads if we do that. So I don't think we should. Okay. So, um, yes. Yeah, so, yeah, go stakeholders. Yay. Anyway. Uh, ultimately, though, um, okay. So, I just, just want to circle back and I guess maybe then we should probably wrap up. But honestly, uh, it comes back to identifying the solid core features and not being pulled too far astray by too many marketing, solely marketing-based uh, features. And I think that that's, that's the key. Identifying those and staying focused, and that's, that's the difficult bit. Because bo- bottom line is time is always against you. No matter how you want to think about it, you know, time, it's like people will say, oh, well, it doesn't really, some, some products can drag on, especially if it's something that you're developing yourself for your own purposes. But the truth is that if you really are objective about it, time is always going to be against you because it's a competitive market. You're not the only smart cookie out there. You're not the only company out there. And if you don't produce something quickly enough, someone else can and will inevitably beat you to it. And, you know, especially when you're developing on platforms as platforms become more popular. So back in the early days of iOS and the App Store, you know, for example, there was much less competition, whereas now there's so many people developing for the platform. The platform's enormous. You know, it's very, very competitive. So you've got to use your time wisely and you can't just throw it away on a feature that sounds like it would be good for marketing purposes, but is really not a core function. And you just can't afford being to be sidetracked for any real significant period of time on stuff that is not going to get you to the end of your contract, to the end deliverable, to, to where you're trying to get to. And uh, I think that too many people lose sight of that and then like, it'd be so great if we could do this or that. And it's, yeah, but that takes time and time is money. But I mean, even if even if time wasn't money, time is still a problem. Time's always against you. Yeah, that time time is the one resource I can't get more of, and that is the thing that basically drives me in all my decision making. Is you know how how long is it going to take me to do these things? Can I should I do them? Is it worth doing? You know, even not even in terms of projects, just in terms of life. Like that's that's one of the things that kind of guides my thought process in, in every aspect of what I'm doing. And, you know, you, you attribute value to certain things. And certainly in business, there are things that have a, a very 
you know, a very perceivable value. But yeah, like you said, even if time wasn't money, time means you're not doing other things. There are other things you could be doing that you're not doing because you're doing this. And so ultimately you need to, you need to weigh out what, what that time should be allocated toward. Yeah, it's an interesting way you, uh, that you express that is that uh, time is the one thing that you can't get more of. And it, it got me thinking that's true because you can go back to a customer with a variation and say, hey, you want to add this extra functionality, that's a variation, it's going to be an extra this amount of dollars. And usually if it's something they really want and their scope for you know that in their on their side of the budgetary fence then you know you can get that budget far more easily than you can say oh i need another few more weeks yeah <laughs> what's their head explode when you say i need another month yeah yeah hmm. their customer won't come back if you say that so it's it's a good point so i guess if i had to summarize on a set of points and i guess the first thing and maybe this is obvious, but I think you need to be very clear exactly who your customer is because so many people will come to you from within the organization, from within the customer's organization, asking for different features, core features, marketable features, doesn't matter. Uh, you know, essentially pushing the design in directions, you know, that it perhaps shouldn't go, driving that scope creep. You know, you have to be clear who your customer actually is so that you can identify which ones, frankly, that you can ignore. And I think you need to be very clear in your feature classification. So when something comes in, you, you classify those. Okay, well, that's definitely a core feature. We absolutely must have that. If you are clear up front, you know decisively which ones to focus on. That's huge. I also think you need to be honest about how much effort's going to be required to implement a feature. And I've talked about this on other show, on previous episodes. The bottom line is there's the ability to predict how long something's going to take and there's the the emotional aspect of being optimistic versus being realistic. And that is something that is a learned skill and it's very hard to, you know, it's easy for me to say, but it's hard as a skill to learn. But being honest means trying to take as much of the emotion out of it, as much of the optimism out of it, look at past history, you know, track your history, track how long it takes you to develop things, to design things, and use that as your basis for your prediction and take the emotion out of it and be as honest as you can. And when it comes to those fourth quadrant activities, the ones where I'm, those my four quadrant thing I talked about earlier, whereby you know, it's, it's a complex uh, feature and it's got a lot of interdependencies, you know, be brutal in saying no to those fourth quadrant activities because you know, if you are not brutal, you will never get there because inevitably you'll just chew up in more and more time and you'll just never deliver. Do you have any that you would add to that? No, I think that I think that summarizes it pretty well. It, you know, it's it, it's tough because when you're when you're not building something for yourself, there's an innate desire I think in most people to want to please the the people for whom you're building. And that that comes very often in direct conflict with what they're asking you to do. <laughs> so it's yeah. it's really it's a it's a really it's a balance that needs to be struck between being very aware of what's being required of you. You know, you have one, one, one part of that. You have one part of, I want to do a good job. I want this to be successful. You have another part that is, I know these people are going to just keep adding things or keep changing things. And I need to put my foot down and say, Hey, if you want it for this price by this date, it's got to be this and you can't keep, you know, 
you can't keep changing things and, and have everything in flux. And it's it, it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of learning and a lot of experience. Usually, I don't know many people who are great at doing all these things, you know, right out of college. It takes a lot of time uh, to to get these skills all in the right balance so that everybody's happy, the product ships, and you feel like you maintained, you know, directional control over not not directional control in the sense that it's what you wanted, but directional control in that you steered it to completion successfully. Yeah, I agree. It's difficult. It's I don't think it's definitely a skill that no one is born with. It's something that that you have to learn, and unfortunately, sometimes it's it's the painful it's a painful learning lesson learning exercise. And I sometimes I, I sometimes feel bad when I I learn some of these lessons and I learn them at a customer's expense. And it you know like if if it's it's rough because you you look back and you think, well, if only I'd done this differently, I could have save this amount of time and this amount of effort and we could have put that towards some more features that they would have liked and you know but the good I guess suppose the good news is though most of the clients that I've worked with have been relatively understanding so you know when you're you know unless you come in and do something really really <laughs> and you burn a ridiculous amount of time and you know they take exception to it that really hasn't happened very often most clients are pretty understanding and they want to work with you to to get the best possible result so but definitely something you have to learn, no it, doubt about that. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, if you're if you're approaching it the right way, the relationship with the client, you want it to be, you want it to be long term in in many cases. And if you're if you're coming from a place of real earnest desire that you want them to succeed through your efforts, I think people people are generally more flexible than than you know most people would expect. And even if, like you said, you wish you had done things differently or you could have saved money and put it towards other features. I think people will recognize, good clients will recognize the effort that you made. And if you, if you do those things and have the best intentions, I think, you know, the end product is usually good enough to suit their needs. Certainly in a lot of cases, they know it could have been a lot worse because sometimes they've worked with groups in the past and it has been a lot worse so your results that you think might not have been that great could be exemplary to them and if it if it all goes off pretty well you can continue working with them hopefully and maybe take those lessons and you know build something better the next time which is you know that's that's the that's a great scenario to be in where you have a good relationship with a client and you know the the future is bright because you both understand each other and what each party wants and are willing to, you know, learn together. Absolutely. Well, we've talked a lot about on this episode about working for clients, doing client work. And I mean, obviously, that's the majority of what we've, we've, we've done in our careers. And, and, and that's fine. Uh, I guess something, though, that uh, Nickelfish uh, is, has been uh, doing a little bit more of recently, though, is some more of your own stuff. Um, could you talk a little bit about that before we wrap up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, for the, for a very long time, we've wanted to build our own products and it's been the kind of thing where when you do client work, it's tough to find the time to build your own stuff because the client work takes priority. It pays well, it pays your bills, keeps the business going. 
So we found ourselves in the position at the end of last year and at the beginning of this year where you know, we had a, a certain balance between client work and availability, and we said, you know, now's the time to do it. And so we decided to form a separate, uh, separate smaller company, a separate brand that's affiliated with our, you know, our company, Nickelfish, called Derby. And what we intend for Derby to be is our, our product team. So we have, you know, a handful of ideas that we've been kind of working through, but we are super excited to be able to finally do this. And the only way we were able to do it was to actually take a couple of us and completely cut off from client work altogether. So I haven't dealt with clients myself since February of this year, which is, you know, the the majority of the year has been spent building, you know, a new process and getting this thing up and going um, and and focusing on a single new product that we're going to be, you know, releasing pretty soon. And it's been an, it's been a really interesting couple of months and it's been a huge change from, you know, all the stuff we talked about, but just to kind of touch on something that you said earlier, you know, we had, we had talked about if you're building your own products, it would be in your best interest to be um, really focused on selling features to yourself to make sure you're spending time in the right way. And that is something that we've really, really tried to do. We've, we've done an intense amount of thinking and planning and every decision that we make within, you know, the app that we're working on, we talk about it and we make sure that it's for the right reasons. And the right reasons might be, because we think it's you know a saleable feature, because we think this will, this is something that is core to the experience that needs to be there so that people understand it or enjoy it, or this is a you know this is a change to the code that needs to be there to handle this this or the other thing. And we've approached it with the same rigor that we approach um, the client work that we do, and it's been a really great experience because it it has not been the kind of thing that meanders all over the place. We've been very targeted and very focused in what we wanted to build and when we wanted to build it and the time frame in which we had to do it. And so the real test for us is going to be, you know, when we release it, how does this thing perform? And of course, you know, we're we're putting it out into a, a really crowded market, but we haven't we haven't spent an inordinate amount of time on it. So we're kind of looking at it as a case study that this is the first time we've done this process we've gone down this road and had you know these things you know all kind of all working together and it is such a different animal from the client work that we've done that even if it's not you know an an amazing success which of course we all hope it is because why wouldn't you you know there's a lot of learning that we did along the way that i think will influence the next project that we take on and you know it's, as I said, it's so different from the stuff that I've been used to doing for the past 10 years or so. It's, it's exciting. It's terrifying. It's, you know, invigorating. It's, it's all those things, but it's still work. It's still the the same kind of work just with a, with a different focus. But since we're the ones making the calls, there's this extra added gravity as to, is this the right thing? Is this the wrong thing? You know, does this even matter? Will people even notice? And it's been a very, a very strange and wonderful experience. <laughs> yeah, well, it sounds like, I mean, it's since February, I think you just said, didn't you? I mean, that's a, that's nearly a whole year now. So it's been 
that's a lot of time and a lot of effort. Yeah, I mean, the first the first part of the year was a lot of my time was spent kind of like tying up loose ends on client projects that I was affiliated with and also getting the process for this new kind of thing started because we'd never done an end-to-end product ourselves. So there was a, a whole lot of planning that we wanted to do and we wanted to build. I mean, it sounds super boring, but like we wrote a lot of documentation for ourselves to understand what it was that we were trying to do because we didn't want to just go, we're going to do this thing and yeah, sure. So we built, you know, decision gates and product funnels and all of this stuff and spent weeks and weeks just figuring out how we wanted to figure things out. And if that sounds like an incredible waste of time, I would strongly disagree because I think the danger that a lot of a lot of individuals and a lot of companies find themselves in is that you don't do enough thinking up front and now you get to a point where you are three quarters of the way through a product and you're not even sure what the direction of it is or what your plan is. And one of the things that's been great for us is that we've been very clear the entire path as to what we were doing and how we wanted to accomplish it. That in and of itself is extremely freeing because you're not worrying about those things. You're, you're worried about the things that matter. You're worried about your code. You're worried about your experience. You're worried about all the stuff that you should be worried about, not why are we even doing this? And that it took a while to, you know, actually start building, you know, from like prototype to, to like real production code. But once we got there, we felt like, yeah, we've, we've done all the things we needed to do to get here. This isn't just kind of a fly by the seat of our pants thing. We're, we're really planning for this thing to be a long-term, um, a viable solution to this thing we want to do. Cool. So how far, how much further is there to go before you've, uh, w- till, till it's all out there? I realize that you've done some pre-announcing. Yeah. Yeah, we have, um, we're getting close. We're getting close. We're we're probably in you know the, the very last stages of fixing some last little bugs and things that we want to tweak. But we're probably going to submit to the app store pretty soon. And we're you know we don't have a a date in mind yet, but we'd like to mm-hmm. kind of get it out either the end of this month or the very beginning of December, just because we, we we're not sure with app review time how long it'll be, and we probably don't want to you know, release right around Thanksgiving because there's all kinds of other stuff that happens. So we're we're getting very close. Um, the website is up. You can see, you know, a little bit about the app. And I have started to kind of talk about it a little bit more, which was fun in and of itself because it mm-hmm. was like a super secret for so long. But yeah, yeah, we're we're pretty we're pretty close. So you should be seeing it within the next few weeks, I'd say. Fantastic. All right, cool. Can't wait. Yeah. Very exciting. All right. Well, we might wrap it up, I think, at that point. Um, unless there's anything else you wanted to add? No, I think I'm good. All right. Cool. Well, if you would like to talk more about this, you can reach me on Twitter at uh, John Chigi. If you'd like to send any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website. And that's where you also find the show notes for this episode under Podcasts Pragmatic. If there are topics that you would like me to cover, you can suggest and vote on them at techdistortion.com slash topics once you sign up for a free account at techdistortion.com. You can follow Pragmatic Show on Twitter to see show announcements and other miscellaneous show-related stuff. I'd like to thank my guest host, Seth Clifford, for coming back on the show. And what's the best way for people to get in touch with you, Seth? 
That's probably Twitter. I'm Seth Clifford on Twitter. And if you'd like to see the work that we do, uh, you can visit nickelfish.com. And if you're interested in the new company and the new product, you can go to heyderby.com. Fantastic. I'd also personally like to thank Harvest for sponsoring Pragmatic. If you want to track your time quickly and easily with the ability to quickly turn those timesheets into invoices for your clients with built-in support for both PayPal and Stripe, then Harvest has what you need. Check out Harvest at getharvest.com and sign up for a free 30-day trial today. Once your 30-day trial is over, use the coupon code PRAGMATIC at the checkout and you'll also save 50% off your first month. But hurry because this offer expires on January the 15th, 2015. I'd also personally want to thank Mandraw for sponsoring this episode. If you're looking to improve your site or app and need transactional email that's reliable, integrates easily and provides easy tracking and analysis, then Mandraw can help you. Visit mandraw.com and sign up today. You should because it's free. No credit card, no commitment, just sign up and use the promo code PRAGMATIC to get 50,000 free email transactions per month for the first six months. That's four times the normal amount that they would give you. Integrate, deliver, track and analyze with email infrastructure from Mandraw. Well, thanks for listening, everyone, and thank you again, Seth. Yeah, thanks for having me. Question from Vic in the chat room. It's also Vic's birthday. Happy birthday, Vic. And uh, how his question is, how do you know when it's time to ditch unreasonable clients? Or perhaps another way of expressing that, he then says is, uh, where do you draw the line? Um, well, that's... Well, first of all, that's a very loaded question. Uh, ultimately saying that they're an unreasonable client. Um Maybe they're just a, how do you define unreasonable? I guess clients that keep changing their minds, I would classify as unreasonable. Beyond that, I don't think it's fair to call any client unreasonable. Um, I don't know. What do you reckon, Seth? We've only we've only done it, I could count on one hand the number of times we've done it because in in that kind of business, you assume that, you know, you... you you need to maintain the client relationship and that's your goal. So it, you know, it's funny, you said something earlier about taking the hard line as a designer and just saying, this is the way it's going to be. And that's not, and there's a lot of people that I have seen online either write or talk about this kind of thing and taking this hard stance and being like, I drive my clients and this is what I, I know best what they want. That's why they're coming to me. And I have to wonder if, 
what kind of business they have, what kind of repeat business they have, and mm. what the relationships are like, or if that's really just kind of bluster and when it comes down to sitting around a table and hashing out ideas, if they're actually not as, you know, domineering as they'd like you to think that they are. Because it's really, <clears throat> it's really uh, like any other relationship, you have to, you have to work at it. And it's not going to be ideal. Almost no clients are ideal. So you have to understand where they're coming from and try to address the needs that they have. And if it's really making your life miserable, I think, you know, there's plenty of opportunities to have conversations. But in terms of kicking one and just being like, you know, we're not working together, as I said, we've only done it a couple of times in 10 plus years of business. And it's been you know, a scenario where the client has been either abusive in no uncertain terms or we're looking at the project and saying this is this is going to be an abject failure and it is due to this client's you know involvement this is not a, a healthy relationship for us to have and just the way you would you know examine a relationship with a significant other and say you know what this is not good for us that's something mm. you have to do sometimes and it's not a great conversation to have as it isn't a great conversation to have in you know a personal scenario but it occasionally has to happen, but it's usually it's usually something that has to happen over a, a period of time, and you really have to be sure that you want to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm actually, when you were describing that, I'm going back in my mind and thinking how many times I've actually done that. And th there were two customers that I can think of in 20 years where we said, uh, we will not do business with you. Uh, because you are difficult and usually difficult from the point point of view of non-payment. Right. And the non-payment comes in multiple forms. You know, it, it, the, the, the strictest and simplest way to think of it is um, I, I've, I've asked you, I've invoiced you for $2,000, you haven't paid a cent. You know, that's the obvious one. But no, I mean in terms of we're going to continue to ask for more and more features, but we're not going to pay you anything additional for that and we're going to withhold funds for stuff that you've already actually provided on the basis that this other stuff you haven't given us. And the contract law in in construction contracting in Australia is a little bit gray in that respect, whereby in some circumstances, uh, an end customer can get away with demanding that you provide that as a variation of for additional works. And if they if the end customer then does not pay you, then you have rights to go and take them to court. But then, of course, they start arguing about how much value it's worth and you, know, you end up doing the work at cost plus a minimum percentage and it gets very messy contractually. So it's easier for us to simply say, we're not going to work with you. Thanks for playing. See you later. You can have whatever work we've done and we don't expect to get paid. We're just going to walk from the contract. And you know, there's always, after a while, doing that. if you do it a few times, you end up writing clauses like that into your standard terms and conditions. So... Answering the question, it doesn't happen often and it's not a decision you take lightly because it not just it doesn't just affect I, I think taking a decision like that does not just affect that one client relationship. That that can, if you're not careful and if you do it too often, I think that can drive a uh, that can drive a market perception of your organization that you are customer hostile and that will affect your ability to win work. Without and a I doubt. Think that's, yep. Yeah. And that is that is a dangerous situation. You do not want that. 
So I think it's a good question, but the reality is it doesn't happen very often.